0: Uh, And when we're going through a study of the Bible, we can usually stay in one spot, but today be prepared, especially if you're a note taker, we're going to be jumping around here and there, so just get your finger, page, turning fingers ready to go. Uh, If you're visiting with us, uh, you've come at a good time. We just finished a year-long study through the book of 1 Samuel, and in September we're going to jump into the New Testament and start studying the New Testament epistle to the Galatians. So between those two, we wanted to do a series. that that I feel especially on the heels of last week's reflection service, particularly second hour, has really made me realize how important a series this is going to be. It's called Behold Your God, as you can see on the screens behind me, because I think this series, we want to address what I think is a serious problem in in Western society, and and, and that problem isn't a matter of of low self-esteem, so we're not going to have a a series on building your self-esteem. You might think that is our problem by the things we hear all through our culture, trying to build up our esteem. That's not the serious problem we have in Western society. As a matter of fact, kind of on the heels of the humanistic movement, we have actually the opposite problem because of humanism. We actually feel like uh, man and woman has been placed into the center of reality reality, and purpose, only to realize that we were never intended to occupy that space. Having low self-esteem is not our big problem in Western society. I think there is a correspondence uh, between the dethroning of God and the, the rising tide of anxiety and fears in our world around us. Uh, we have never known more about the world we live in. We have never known more about human development. We have never achieved greater technological wizardry than ever before. Yet we have never felt so much anxiety and fear and uncertainty of the future and what's happening around us. Isn't that clear? I mean, we, we get that sense. Wherever you go, conversations in coffee shops, people in your family, maybe around the dinner table, you get that sense. Let me just illustrate that for you. Um, if you've ever used terms like, oh, I'm just OCD, or, oh, she's neurotic, or he's got ADD, you know, we, we throw these terms around. They're part of our mainstream culture. Uh, you realize they all come from a particular discipline, and that's the behavioral sciences. And and of that discipline, they come from one particular book. It's called the DSM. It's like the Bible for psychiatrists and psychologists. It's a diagnostic statistics manual. So we self-diagnose all the time, right? It always changes. I got this. I got that. But if you ever have known someone somebody or you yourself actually uh, have some kind of diagnosis, what's taken place is some behavioral science, someone in that field has referenced the DSM and found that you have corresponding characteristics that match the diagnosis, and then they give you that label. So in 1952, they published the first one. They realized we've got to kind of come up with a schema, make sense of these, and it was about 145 pages uh, and listed 106 disorders. It's 106 ways that we could just go sideways, right? Well, the latest edition just came out back in 2013, the DSM-5. It's got nearly 950 pages, and there's over 300 disorders listed. So in 60 years, a book of 145 pages has become a tome of almost 1,000, and the things that are wrong with us has gone up by nearly 200%. Aren't you feeling glad you came to church to know all this right now? My point simply is... We have never known more about everything, and we're never more scared than we are now. What's the antidote to this? Well, the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 9, and the Bible assures us in Psalm 91, I have it on the screens, Psalm 9, I love this, and those who know your name, what do they do? They put their trust in you. Why? Why? For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 91 assures us this reality. Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him. Why? Because He knows my name. So what is the answer? What what is the antidote? The answer is not denial, pretending that these problems don't exist. The answer is not escapism, ignore them and they'll go away. The answer is not paranoia, feel overwhelmed, there's nothing we can do. The answer is... It's knowing God. That is the problem of Western society. That's the problem of humanity. We don't have a high enough view of who God is. We need to know God. I'll never forget, 22 years old, I read this book by a gentleman, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. I love titles that are straightforward, and I realize, oh, (laughs) who I thought I knew, I have no idea. This book blew my mind on the character and supremacy and beauty of who God is. And I read this book, and I I read it actually just this one time. This was back in 1993. I've never forgotten the opening line of the 1973 edition. He says this, as a clown yearns to play Hamlet, so I yearn to write about God. I thought, this guy gets it. So what I want to do in hopes of having one of you just be blown away, I want to give away this book. So any of you out there who plan to read it, I don't want to give it to somebody who's going to put it on their coffee table. It is a pretty book. I want, somebody, I want to give it to somebody who wants to read this and have their mind blown on who this God is. So if you're that person, raise your hand. I want to give this, to you, this book to you. All right. Oh, I love that. He just hand went up really quick. Yes. Yes. Shane, right? Hey, man. Good seeing you again. All right. Good. Shane, I would love to talk to you about that book when you're done reading it. It is phenomenal. So, uh, this is what we want to attempt to do in this five-week series, Behold Your God. We want to get a, a glimpse. Five weeks is not enough for a vision, but we want to get a glimpse of who God is. We want to get a glimpse of who it is that we're calling ourselves weekly to, to worship, to, to know, and to trust with our lives. Wayne Grudem in his Introduction to Christian uh, Systematic Theology and Introduction to Christian Doctrine says this. It is just mind-blowing. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the oceans and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice caps and a snowflake. More than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in, God's being is qualitatively different. Now, let's stop right there. You can go to the next slide, but let's stop right there. I think when most people think about God, they think in quantitative terms. That's what Grudem is getting at. So, if I can use the illustration, we are ten eggs, God is a million eggs. We just think God is more of us. Grudem is saying, no, God is not quantitatively different. He is qualitatively, totally unlike us. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thoughts of God. He is the creator. All else is creaturely. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. That's who we want to attempt to get a glimpse in the next five weeks in our time together. To get us started in this series and this morning, I want to show you a couple slides and see if you can discern what's the unifying theme, what do they all have in common with each other. So, let's look at this first slide. Anyone recognize this from the movie Up? This is the Angel Falls in Venezuela. I think it's 1,300 feet from top to bottom. Beautiful. Next slide. This is the Crab Nebula, amazing, beautiful creation, millions of miles across, somewhere out there in space. God put it out there millions of years ago, thousands of years ago, and we have no idea. We just discovered it somewhat recently. Next slide. I love this. This is home. Sunset over Maui. I love that one. Next slide. Crazy NFL fans. All right. Anybody watch the Rams game last night? Yes, we won. Finally. Good. So what 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 here's the question? What do these slides all have in common? They all have something in common. What is it they all have in common? Anybody? <laughs> What's that? Color. Yeah, yes, they have color in common. Yes. They have in common. Thank you, Dave. I'm just going to give you the answer at this point. Glory. Every one of these slides Every one of them is a response to or display of, and I know you are even wondering about that Maui sunset, they are a response to or display of glory. Every slide they have in common, that there's an element of glory in them. This is the first characteristic we want to think about when we think about who God is, that God is glorious. In this series, we're going to look at God's glory, His goodness, His grace, His holiness, and even His wrath. And these are just five five attributes of God. There are dozens more. There are communicable attributes of God, things we share with them, as well as incommunicable attributes of God, things we cannot share with them. We're only going to look at five, and that's why I say we're just going to get a glimpse. If you don't get anything else this morning, please get this. This is my driving point. Every man or woman should make God's glory the primary focus of their lives because we were created for God's glory, we flourish best when God is glorified. If you get nothing else, that's my driving point. Every one of us in this room should make God's glory our primary focus because we were made for that purpose. We were made for His glory, and we flourish when God is glorified. That's where we're going. So, before we jump into this, let me define a little bit of what we mean by this phrase, God's glory, because it's a it's a big phrase that has a different senses of it in the in the Bible. In, in one sense, the Bible means to communicate by God's glory, uh, the honor, the, the prestige, the excellence of his reputation. We've seen this all throughout our study of 1 Samuel. The Hebrew word, chavod, it's weightiness, there's a substance to it. In the Greek, it's doxa, which means praise or, or opinion. It is the recognition of the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. That's what it means to, to give God's glory. It's the recognition of the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of who He is. Okay, that's the first sense. Okay, that's the first sense. That's the sense we'll focus on because that's the sense in which we respond. There's a second sense all throughout the Bible uh, of God's glory. It's related to the first, and the, the Bible defines it as um, the physical manifestation of the perfection and supremacy of His character." Now, that's a very interesting thing, the physical manifestation of the perfection and supremacy of His character. The reason that's interesting is God is a spirit, right? By definition, spirits, they have no physicality. It does not extend into space, like I extend five feet, eight inches. There's no physical weightiness, weight to it, that I, like I have 150 pounds. Physical spirits don't extend into the physical realm. So, when the Bible talks about God's glory as a physical manifestation of His supremacy, that's an odd mixture of categories. But do you realize we we see this all the time in our culture? One perfect example for me is, uh, I forgot to ask my wife. I was going to share a story about her. So, honey, can I share it? Yes, thank you. Well, she's not going to say no, right? One of the things I love about Lori is that if you see her her eyes they're just dazzling. I mean, the, the, when she smiles and when she gets happy, there's just a radiance of, of joy that comes through her eyes. I love it, especially when she's so happy or laughing, she's about to cry. There's this, 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 it beams from her that you can almost sense a light, right? That's why we say things like, brilliant and dazzling. Okay. And, by the way, in pop culture we see this as well. Have you ever seen the, those romantic comedies where the, the love interest is seen and sometimes it's slow motion and there's a brilliant light shining behind them? They are trying to capture the same essence that the Bible describes about God. You're going, what are you talking about? Here we go. This, in the same kind of way did I say that there's almost a light that, that my wife emanates when she's so joyous. In the same kind of way pop culture tries to capture beauty by showing a brilliant light, God's immaterial beauty, perfection, and supremacy is so pure and dazzling that the brightness is beyond our physical ability to gaze upon it. This brilliance and light is referred to in Scripture as God's glory. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it calls it the Shekinah glory of God. And there were times that that glory was so powerful that people couldn't stand in the presence. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and he had the brilliance of God reflecting, just the reflection was so bright, they covered his face. There is a, a, a physical manifestation of his immaterial perfection. Perfection. And that's the other sense in which the Scriptures talk about God's glory. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see this in Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 17, Revelation 21. If you're a note taker, write those down. Read them later. It talks about God's glory being so powerful that people could not even stand to be in the presence, the the physical manifestation of something so radically pure and astounding of of immaterial perfection that it shows up in the physical world. Okay, so that's the second sense of God's glory. The both of them are related, but because the first sense is the one that we ascribe to Him, that's what we're going to focus on. The second sense is just a kind of a, an attribute of His being that comes out. I think for our purposes, we want to talk about the first one. So, that's what we mean today when we talk about God's glory, the recognizing of who He is. Make sense? Look there, Good. So, point number one, we were created for God's glory. Uh, the fact of the matter is that this is an inescapable fact. Whether or not you, are a, uh, you would consider yourself a Christian, this is part of our created DNA. This is just who we are as human beings. We see this everywhere, whether or not we realize it. Let me illustrate that for you. There isn't a moment where you see something like El Capitan or the Angel Falls or Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or a star-filled evening that you don't stop and are simply amazed. So much so is this intuitive within us, this need to be amazed by something, that if you're witnessing something, El Capitan or star-filled night, and there's somebody next to you who's completely checked out and bored and yawning what do you usually say to that person? What's wrong with you? right? You, we intuitively get that when you're in the presence of something astounding, to not respond is a deficiency in that individual. right? That's what we're getting at. It's part of who we are to be astounded and amazed by something out there. I was looking at a star-filled night in my own backyard My dog, Napoleon, has never looked into the night sky and went, wow, God must be, no animal in creation ponders creation except man, right? When birds by flocks fly over our backyard, my family, we love to watch and see all that go by. My dog, Napoleon, never looks up and says, the miracle flight. He's not, all he's thinking is, man, I'd love to get one of those in my mouth right now. He's not amazed by birds. He's not amazed by flight, nothing. But every human being sees us and says, whoa, it elicits something within us because by design, human beings were created to be the kind of beings that are to give glory to something. That's just our design. And every time we say beauty, Whether it's the Grand Canyon or a beautiful piece of art, it elicits from within us this response. Human beings were made to get excited about something. We were made to be caught up in glory. What else do you think those men were doing in those sports celebration photographs? Well, what do you think they were doing? When you go to a game, mild-mannered men and women who would never write letters on their bodies and dress up this way go ballistic because they're caught up in the glory of what they're seeing on the field. And it's euphoric to be a part of that. It's in our DNA. That's why whenever you go someplace where everyone's really into it, it's hard not to get caught up in the swell, isn't it? I mean, so a part of the human DNA this is, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. I mean, this almost happened to me when I went to a quilt conference with my wife many years ago. I was like, wow, this is actually kind of compelling. No, I'm not into quilting, but the point is, whenever we are together about something else outside of us, we resonate with that. Well, what is that? That's because human beings were designed to be involved, to be excited about something else. Giving glory, here's my argument, is part and parcel to being a human being. Let me tease that out even more. Giving glory to God is what it means to be human. I'm going to explain that from Scripture. But that's a, that's a strong statement. What it means to be human is to give glory to God. The Bible says this, Isaiah 43. We can only look at two verses, but there are hundreds. Isaiah 43:7. Everyone who's called by my name, here I underlined it so we couldn't miss it, whom I created for what? My glory, okay? Let's look at the next verse, a few verses down, Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for what? For myself, why? That they might declare my praise. Now, you might say, well, okay, I get that, my people, these are God's people, it doesn't really apply to me if I'm not a Christian granted. So, let's go someplace. Let's look at the book of Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible, uh, uh, the first book of the… the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. This is… we're talking creation. This is when it started. This is what the writer writes. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon it. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, let's just stop. I mean, the, the 26 and 27, those verses are so powerful. Scripture says, that God, in in from eternity past, this amazing triune being said. And, and by the way, John seventeen five. You don't need to turn there yet. Write that down. We'll look at it later. We see from John seventeen five that from time in, 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 eternal there was this interpersonal glorifying between the Son to the Father, the Spirit to the Son, the Father receiving that glory, loving in response to the Spirit and the Son. There was this great glorification going on from all eternity. And in Genesis one we get a peek. He says, "Man, this." is so good. we got to get others in on this. This is just too rich. Let's make creation. Boom. and let's make man. So, in our image, so they can get in on this glory. So, let us make man in our image. And that's what He does. And part of that imaging of God is getting in on this glorification scheme that's going on from time immemorial. Now, Romans 1, verses 18 and following, gives us, strongly implies that humanity was created to give God glory and honor. And one of the reasons our world has gone completely sideways is because man chose not to do that, but to chose to give glory and honor to other things. So, so Genesis 1 is saying, man, not just what you would consider Christian or non-Christian. Humanity was created to be part of this glorifying process. And we see in Genesis 3, but again, Paul writes about it in Romans 1, the reason things went sideways was because man said, no, I'm not going to live for your glory. I'm going to live for other glories, whatever they might be. And they might be wicked, wrong things like lust, greed, money, power. Or they can be benign things, career, family, sports, hobbies, travel. Whatever it is, God, You're not going to be the primary thing I'm about. It's going to be about these other things. So, so, let me… Here's a radical, but I think a logical inference from Genesis chapter 1 and what Romans 1 tells us. If we were created for God's glory, and I think that's true from Genesis 1, John 17, and if that purpose is essential to our humanity, then to the degree we give glory to things other than God, then to that degree we begin to lose what it means to be truly human. Okay, whether or not you agree with where I land, I think my propositions are sound. Likewise, to the degree that we make God's glory, His reputation, His excellence, His character, the focus of our lives, to that degree, we are becoming authentically humans. We are authentically being what we were designed to be. We should make God's glory the primary focus of our lives because that's what humanity was created to do. Genesis chapter 1, John 17 gives us that insight. So, the implications for our lives are enormous. Number one, our lives now can have true meaning and significance. Many of you know I'm writing my dissertation, and I've been doing tons of research on meaninglessness and meaning and authenticity and what it means to be a true human being, and the research literature on the feeling of meaninglessness in our culture is massive. It's just astoundingly massive in our culture because people constantly are trying to find meaning and pull meaning, ultimate meaning, from things that were never intended to give that. We try to, as Irvin Yalom, the the uh, professor of uh, psychiatry at Stanford says, we live off scraps of meaning and try to build things to it and make our lives meaningful from these little things. Here's the irony from the Christian worldview. The irony of the Christian worldview is that when you don't have to derive your sense of meaning or identity or purpose from the things of this world, your family, your career, your social status, your identity in this world, even your kids. The Bible teaches you actually can experience those more in a, in a much more meaningful way because they no longer dominate you. You are free from them to love them the way they should be loved. But to the degree you've invested who you are into these things, you are dominated by them. And so your sense of meaning is dependent on market variables, right? Your sense of meaning is dependent upon a teenager's mood swings. God says, no, your meaning was not to be derived in that. Fix it in something eternal and non immutable like my character. When you do that, you have found true meaning. A second implication is that our lives can be about more than our lives. People who are fixed on God's glory don't get easily distracted by the things of this world, good, bad, or otherwise. Now, this isn't that we believe in stoicism or some kind of determinism, that, that we don't enjoy life, that's not, what's being, um, that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to say. It's just that you take the good and the bad in the larger context of what God is doing. So, you don't get cocky and arrogant when things work out your way, neither do you get crushed and despair when they don't. You're living for something far bigger than this life, something far more secure than this life. Now, I want you to go to uh, Matthew chapter 6. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to His disciples and, and hundreds of people listening in, and He says, this is almost a climax, He says in verse 33 of chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. What things? Jesus was talking about this upside-down kingdom of God. He's calling people to, and and they were saying, well, but but what about food? How will we survive? Where will we live? What what, what about all these things? And and he says, no, no, no. Seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, notice right before verse 33, in verse 32, he, he kind of responds to him. He says, look, the Gentiles seek after all these things, And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. First thing that's important is, he says, this is your heavenly Father. And no father, no child in this room has to go, man, will will Dad provide food for me? Is is he going to actually let me eat? Am I going to be on the street tonight? No, the Father, He's going to take care of you. Your Father knows what you need, and He's going to provide it for you. My kids never walk, actually every morning they'll walk down and they say, is there anything to eat? Well, they don't mean, do we have food? Will we have provision? They mean, what are you making for me for breakfast is what they mean. But, but they never worry that there's not going to be food, that there won't be a place to sleep because this father, frail and, and, you know, blinded by sin and fallen as he is, will do everything to care for them and provide that. The Lord is saying, look, don't sweat the details you have a Father who's going to care for you. The challenge before you is not get your eye distracted from what's most important. That's my glory. That's my kingdom. Seek that first because He knows we're tempted to seek everything else first. You seek that, and it all comes together. Now, to sum up, We should make God's glory our primary focus in our lives because we were created for God's glory. Now, at this point, before we move on to point two, some of you are, you're in. You're in. Yep, made for God's glory. Say no more. You had me at Chavod. I'm done. I'm good. But others of us, if we're going to be honest, and we always should, we may need a little bit more convincing of the practical reasons why living for God in a world that doesn't even acknowledge Him, living for His glory and not our own, is actually worth doing, and it is the most highest good we could pursue. So, here's reason number two. We should make God's glory the central primary focus of our lives because we flourish when God is glorified. Another way to phrase this point is that God's glory is His people's highest good. When God is glorified most, that is the highest good of His people could ever hope to achieve. So, so what I mean by this is that we as human beings were designed to live in a God-infused environment. The Puritans, uh, they love Latin phrases. They have one that says, "Corum Deo means before the face of God. Genesis 1 tells us that God so made humanity that the duty of giving God glory would be our supreme delight and in that way furthering of our highest good. That's the way God made all humanity that we would take supreme delight in glorifying Him, and in so doing, we would achieve our own highest good, so much so that the psalmist can say in these verses I have on the screens behind me, and and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of verses I chose four: Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." Psalm 21.6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Next slide. Psalm 36.8, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? And we see finally in John 10.10 10 in the New, the New Testament, Jesus says the same thing. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I want you to notice… Um, Debbie, I don't know if you can go back, but go back to the next slide. I want you to notice, in, in I underlined all the benefits we get, and then I made in bold who's actually doing, who's the mover, making those benefits possible. God makes it the path of life. Folks, this this metaphor, the path of life, we use it in our culture, right? But we say, I'm on a journey. You ever hear people say that? I'm on a journey. Well, it's the same kind of thought. It comes from the Bible. 800 times this metaphor of path was so important to a culture where the primary means of travel was what? Walking on a path, right? This was significant. And in that culture, burglars and robbers were always on paths. To know the path of safety was a valued commodity, to know the path of life. The writer's saying, look, God knows the path of life, the one that has life. Your right hand pleasures forevermore. Next slides, next, next screen. Next In Psalm 36, 8, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from your Delights, by the way, that's the word Eden in the Hebrew. That's the same word we get Eden. That, that is so wonderful in your presence. It's like Eden. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Notice this Psalm 36 8. you give them drink from the river. Here's the problem. Look, when you hear river, don't think L.A. River, right? You're driving over the 57. There's nothing there, right? So, so when it says river, they're thinking gushing Colorado American river. That's gushing the river of dights. For with you is a fountain of life bubbling over, just exploding. Friends, think, is there anything in this life, anything that, that we, we can latch on to, hobby, leisure, vocation, relationships that can guarantee those benefits to us. Nothing. We were created not to be autonomous functioning beings on our own. The Bible says we were created to flourish, and we flourish best by living for God's glory. We weren't supposed to be on our own, doing our own thing. Worse yet, we weren't supposed to be people seeking our own glory. We weren't supposed to be people seeking to be amazed by the glory of the things of this world because they never will fill us up because they never were intended to. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford uh, scholar, said, look, well, he didn't say look, but <laughs> he said, if, the things of this, if you find that the things of this world do not fill you up, it should cause you to ponder and wonder that you weren't made for the things of this world to begin with. We don't go through life looking to find your, your glory meter fulfilled by things of this world they never, ever satisfy. Genesis chapter 1: 26 to 28, we read that, tells us that humanity was marked, impressed with, made in His image, and we thrive when we're fulfilling our image-bearing mandate, and part of that image-bearing mandate is bringing glory to Him, Romans chapter 1, write these things down, read them later, especially from verses 21 and following, tells us how it went wrong. It says literally that we exchange the image of God for the images, other images, other shadow glories of this world. And the tricky thing is, we tend to think that those are all the negative things, right? like I said, a pursuit of lust and power and all these wicked things. And that's true, but the more subtle dangerous images are the things that are actually good and maybe benign in our world. But we make them our world. Career, provision, identity, upstanding moral citizen, family, kids, whatever it is, if we've replaced, whatever we put in its place, it's still what the Bible calls idolatry. We're still failing to image God. It's in our DNA as human beings to invest in things, and we can't escape this fact. When we place God as the primary glory that you live for, it frees us up to relate to this world the way God intended for us to, because only God is strong enough to bear the weight of that glory, and only God is worthy enough to receive that glory to begin with until we do that, get aligned with our first fundamental reality of what it is to be a human being, everything else is going to be out of kilter. And and this can be a reality even if you call yourself a Christian, right? Because you can be a Christian and put other things on the throne. You can make being a Christian the thing you put on the throne. We want to make sure that God's glory… His character, His purposes, His agenda, what what He wants to be about is the thing that we live for and die for. Anything else will not satisfy us because that's how we were designed. That's, That's my argument. I'm not saying this is optional. I'm not saying this is my opinion. I'm saying this is what Scripture teaches us, and here's why. One of the primary reasons, God demands, can we say that? And we might be uncomfortable. It feels like God's a little narcissistic. He's demanding we glorify Him. The reason He demands and is right to do so is because He knows it's in our DNA to glorify it, glorify, and the, the, the degree we put that glory on anything else other than Him, it'll fail us it will let us down, and God does not want that to happen. So, He demands for our good to be the center of our lives. Jesus Himself was tempted. Jesus Himself was tempted to have all the other glories of this world. Do you realize that? Jesus Himself, like you and I, were tempted to make glo- His life about something else, someone else's glory other than God. If you're a note taker, write down Matthew 4, Luke 4, Hebrews 4. It's kind of nice how that worked out. Matthew 4, Luke 4, Hebrews 4. It talks about Jesus being tempted, but he goes back to live for the glory of God. Jesus had family, Jesus had fame, Jesus had reputation, and you know what? They all let him down. In the end, he was betrayed by all those. But he wasn't crushed, he wasn't embittered, and he wasn't angry because he lived his life for something far beyond those things. He lived it for God's glory. Last verse, I want us to go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to get a peek into Jesus' prayer. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this to the Father, I glorified you on earth. It's amazing. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Okay, I can't resist. Let's go to Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 So we just heard Jesus saying, I glorified the Father. That's what He was about. And He says, having done the work you gave me to do. And you might be tempted to think, well, of course, Jesus had to do that. He's Jesus. That was His job. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, for we, those of us in Christ, are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that God has prepared for us to do. We are being called to do the same thing that Jesus Christ was called to do, make God the supreme glory by which He lived for. Back to John, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence, check this out, with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Here it is. Humanity was made to image God, and part of that imaging is taking place in that self, the glorification of this amazing being, and we get to be a part of that. And here, we ran out of time. I didn't even get to the the highest agenda of God's glorification agenda wasn't just Him. Remember I said, He said, this is so rich, we got to get others into it. The Bible teaches God's kind of end game is that all of us share in His glory. Isn't that mind-blowing? That God says, look, I, I love it. I, I created creation to give me glory. I wanted image, image bearers like me to shape, to be a part of that glory, give me the glory. But in the end, I want them to share in this glory with me. Folks, if that just doesn't make you laugh hilariously or weep or bawl or both, I don't know what will. God's end game through all the trials and difficulties of our life is that we would be participants in His eternal glory. We were made for God's glory. Don't settle for any other glory in your life, no matter how abundant or how nice these shards of glories are. They're only shadow glories that are reflections to the one true glory our lives should be about. Like Jesus said, don't lose sight of what it's really all about. That's Him and His kingdom. Last verse, uh, uh, I lied, so I'm going to go to one more passage. Romans, or Hebrews chapter 1, we'll conclude with this. The writer to the Hebrews says this, "'Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world.'" And here it is, "'He is the radiance of the glory of God.'" and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. If you realize in your life, man, God has not been the glory I've lived for, how do I get back on that path? Hebrews tells us it's all about the (laughs) Son. He is the exact imprint of the glory of God and His image. We find our true humanity in the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, and we do that by differently in a sense, bowing the knee and acknowledging Him as King and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to just briefly look into the glory that is Yours. Father, we thank You that Your Word is clear, how it talks about our origins, how it talks about the meaning and purpose by which we were brought into existence, why things go wrong, and how they can be made right again. But most importantly, that reminds us that You sent Your Son to be the one to to bring it all together. Father, help us to make His glory our supreme delight. Father, help us to be completely satisfied in who You are, and by so doing, bring You glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.